You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. This is going to be a very special, extreme jet lag. The Savage Lovecast. I've just gotten back from Australia. Uh, we had a, an amazing time. I was there for six days uh, to appear and speak at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas in Sydney and the Festival of Dangerous Ideas pop-up ancillary event in Melbourne. Uh, I had a terrific time. It's an amazing event. Uh, there should be something like it here in the States. Uh, and some things went out, came out of my mouth at the Festival for Dangerous Ideas. Um, we were batting around dangerous fucking ideas. That was the whole point of this festival, hence the title of the festival. And it, something came out of my mouth and I was like, oh my god, this is going to get back to the States and I'm going to get into so much trouble for this. People are going to blow the fuck up. And then I saw it on Twitter, somebody quoting me on Twitter and I thought, oh, this is the end of me. This is going to be a shitstorm. I'm going home to a shitstorm. Um, and, and here's what I said that I thought would kick off the shitstorm, but did not. This is not the shitstorm that I have come home to in the wake of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. I said that as somebody misquoted or only partially quoted me on the Twitter uh, that I think we should give kitty porn to pedophiles. I thought this would be all over the right wing Christian blogs. Dan Savage wants to hand pedophiles kitty porn. I qualified that statement. I unpacked it uh, on the panel that I was on. Uh, in Sydney, where you know, not actual kitty porn showing actual children being actually raped, not creating more demand for this kind of rape of children on film, uh, kitty porn, but Photoshop, drawings, animation, images. What we know now about the wider availability of hardcore porn on the internet is that uh, it has correlated very strongly, perhaps causally, with a decrease in sexual assault and, and rape. There's a terrific article at Scientific American called The Sunny Side of Smut, and I quote, Some experts believe the consumption of pornography may actually reduce the desire to rape by offering a safe, private outlet for deviant sexual desires. Rates of rape and sexual assaults in the U.S. are at their lowest levels since the 1960s, says Christopher J. Ferguson, a professor of psychology and criminal justice at Texas A&M University. Within the U.S., the states with least internet access between 1980 and 2000 and therefore the least access to internet pornography experienced a 53% increase in rape incidents, whereas the states with the most access experienced a 27% drop in the number of reported rapes, according to a, publish, according to a paper published in 2006 by Anthony D'Amato, law professor at Northwestern University. So here's what we know about access to certain kinds of porn, that it leads to fewer sexual assaults, less rape. So if you want to protect children from pedophiles, from pedophiles who offend, who are then child molesters and child rapists, that maybe we should allow pedophiles access to certain kinds of child pornography, child pornography that does not show actual children being actually raped. You know, when we say that it's illegal for a pedophile to own an underwear catalog with children in it, we are expressing our moral disapproval, and I disapprove very strongly of child rape myself, uh, but we are not actually protecting children, and we may be making the world less safe for children by not allowing pedophiles to have some access to pornography that would, again quoting, offer a safe private outlet for their deviant sexual desires. That was my point at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas about Pedophilia, and I thought, oh my god, that came out of my mouth. I'm going to get in so much trouble. Maybe I'll be in trouble now. Maybe people just didn't pick that up. Maybe I'm stepping in it. But what blew the internet up 
what filled my Facebook page with things like this from Facebook member Wesley McCourt. You are a very sick man who needs to have your mouth sewed, S-O-W-E-D, shut, and your hands cut off to make it hard for you to spew your hatred for anyone that does not think like you. And messages like this from Vinny Gazzara, Christian. This sodomite, meaning me, Dan, is a damn, D-A-M, baby killer. May this demonic creature quickly return to the pit of hell from where it escaped. There it can live with Satan for all eternity. In hell you will burn. These comments were inspired by my comments about perhaps the world would be safer for children of pedophiles who do not offend had some outlet that allowed them to jack it in private. Uh, these comments were inspired by something I said at the top of my head at the end of this program called Q&A, which is sort of a combo of real time with Bill Maher and firing line. They had, you know, four, four of us were on this panel. At the end, we were asked, you know, a problem in the world that you think needs to be addressed that didn't come up during the show. And I said overpopulation. And then I said that, uh, you know, when you think about it, almost every environmental problem that we talk about can be traced back to too many fucking people on this planet. Uh, environmental degradation, overfishing, uh, deforestation, uh, mass extinction of other species, uh, heating up the planet, climate change, all these things ultimately tie back to too many of us running around consuming, eating, shitting, farting, driving. Uh, and so I said overpopulation and I'm pro-choice. I'm quoting myself here. I'm pro-choice. Uh, but sometimes in my darker moments, I'm anti-choice. And I think that abortion shouldn't be a choice. It should be mandatory for about 30 years. This was an offensive and hyperbolic and not serious point I was making, right? Sometimes in our darker moments. Do I mean it? Do I believe that we should have a China-esque policy? Not a, not a one-child policy, but a no-child policy for 30 years? Am I coming to kill all the babies? Uh, according to Facebook, uh, nutbags, I am. According to right-wing batshit websites, Red State, Breitbart, Daily Caller, I am coming to kill the babies. I am not coming to kill the babies. It was an intentionally hyperbolic, outrageous, assholey, despairing statement. Like we would never do that and we should never do that. I'm pro-choice and I still am pro-choice and I believe people have a right to make up their own minds including the idiot Duggars have a right to make up their own minds about how many children they want to have or don't want to have. But I despair and in my darker moments sometimes I think, yeah, something's coming. A reckoning is coming and if we don't engineer it, uh, it will be engineered for us. The earth is eventually going to shrug a great many of us off. So just to clarify for all the professionally offended folks out there, I am not coming to kill the babies. But while I'm not coming to kill the babies, it seems that a lot of God's gentle people, loving pro-life Christians are coming to kill me according to my Twitter feed and Facebook. And yes, there is something contradictory, even hypocritical about being pro-choice and having these darker moments, dark moments of the soul where you think, ah, abortion should be mandatory for 30 years uh, and being pro-life and – spitting out death threats at the pace that all these pro-life douchebags who read Daily Caller, Breitbart, and Red State do. The point being made by the right-wing professionally offended brigades is that I meant this, that I really meant this, and I want to kill all the babies for 30 years. And of course, I didn't mean it. Of course, it was hyperbolic, just like Jonathan Swift didn't mean that the Irish should eat their children. But, you know, why let obvious satirical intent, humor, hyperbolic overstatement. Why let any of that, why let your judgment, why let the facts get in the way of your anger, gasm, Breitbart, Red State, Daily Caller, 
Who am I to deny you your hate hard-on? They are the only hard-ons you people get, I realize. So enjoy. Anyway, the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, Q&A. You should check it out. The whole conversation is up on YouTube. Coming up in the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast this week, we have Daniel Bergner, author of What Women Want and The Other Side of Desire, who's going to be here to talk about foot fetishism with us. And of course, your calls, my rants, and more on the Savage Lovecast. Hey, Dan. I am a straight married woman in my early 30s, and I am a teacher, which is relevant to this story. So I, the other day, I was at the gym, um, and I'm running on the treadmill, and look over and there is this like attractive guy. I he's lifting weights and I think he's pretty cute, but I can't see his face. <laughs> he stands up um and I can see his face and he is a student that I had in class last year. He's still a minor and I was horrified. This is not a he, he's a kid. He's not a kid that I ever had any sort of attraction to ever. Um, and so I was super grossed out that I had this reaction to seeing him when I didn't see his face and know who he was. So I went home and I told my husband, cause I, that's what I do. And we have a great marriage and totally comfortable sharing stuff like that. He was more icked up than I was. And he, he's asking me like, do you find your students attractive? Is this like a thing? And I kind of don't know how to respond or to convince him that this was something that I was just really, like I said, horrified by. So if you have any advice, that'd be great. Thanks. You need to change the subject. You need to say to your husband, what the fuck is this actually about? Of course I don't want to fuck my students. I told you that when I real when he turned around and I saw his face, I was appalled and mortified and I'm not into him. From across a crowded room, across a crowded gym, somebody younger can look older. I had this problem when Terry and I belonged to a certain gym that was more sort of families going to the gym, less like young urban adults going to the gym. And every once in a while I'd see a cute guy from across the room and then you would cross the room and he would get closer and the closer you got – you realize that you had been looking at a cute 14-year-old or a cute 16-year-old. There's something about the way our brains work that when we see somebody across the room, we sort of blow them up to roughly our own height. We sort of see men as six foot tall until proven otherwise and we kind of round them up in age. We figure they're close to our age. We figure they're adults. They're in this adult space. They must be an adult and you, your brain fills in these gaps and then you get a closer look and you're like, holy shit, that person is a minor. And if you are sane and rational – that's a tripwire. And you're like, whoop, nope. And that everything was working fine. Everything was functioning normally for you, appropriately. And your husband's having a meltdown about it. So I think the issue is not whether you saw a, a student of yours that you wanted to fuck or not. But what's going on with your husband? Why is he so threatened by the fact that you are around these teenage boys? Does he think you want to fuck teenage boys? Does he want to fuck teenagers? You need to turn the tables on him. Because on some level, he may be projecting. And if he isn't projecting, I would accuse him of projecting anyway to get him to shut the fuck up about it. When you insist, darling, that I wanted to fuck this teenage boy, part of what I hear you saying, I, I just have to assume that what you're saying is you want to fuck teenage girls. And so you perceive me as wanting to fuck teenage boys. Is that true? If he continues to be an irrational dick about it after that, you need to strategically be an irrational bitch back at him. If he brings it up, you blow up. If he brings it up, you blow up until it stops. And if he keeps bringing it up, 
you blow up and you add this at the end of that third strategic plan blow up. You know what? I don't want to fuck my students. And increasingly, darling, I don't want to fuck you either. So drop it. Hi, Dan. I'm a bi-curious male and a big fan of your show. My question is about a double standard I've noticed in your attitudes coincidentally toward double standards. You say that women have your permission to lie about the number of sexual partners they've had to essentially remain closeted about their sexual experience. And you say that this is a way to protect them from a harmful double standard. On the other hand, when it comes to the double standard that bisexual men face, namely increased prejudice in both queer and straight communities, you implore bisexuals to come the fuck out. In fact, you have said that coming out is the most powerful political act we have. The double standards women and bisexuals face are both harmful. So why do you feel more inclined to protect women and less inclined to help them fight for acceptance? Might you better serve women by holding them to the same standard that you hold bisexuals to? I haven't given women permission to lie about their number. I've given women permission to round it down a little bit because of the unfair judgment that, that women are subjected to because a woman with X number of partners is a, a slut and a dude with X number of partners is a stud and I feel like that double standard, that, that slut shaming that goes on is so pernicious and damaging that it is understandable that women will round it down a little bit, that women won't count the blowjobs that they've given. They won't count the sex that didn't include vaginal penetration as necessarily sex and that's understandable and I think women legitimately when they're dealing with men who impose those unfair judgments on them have the right to engage in a little rounding down. The deal is though I'm not telling women that they should claim to be virgins Right? I'm not saying that they should run around saying they've never had sex with anyone, but they were, I might shade it, might round it down a little bit. Understandable. The, there's not a double standard when I turn around and tell bi guys that they should be out. People should be out about their sexual orientations, whether they're lesbian, gay, bisexual, or heterosexual. People should be out. Uh, it is a legitimate thing that your partner has a right to know about you if you have an opposite sex partner, that you're bi, particularly if you're bi and active. If you're bi and not sexually exclusive, even if you're bi and inactive, even if you're bi and monogamous, I think that it is better to be known. You know, I think that your partner has a right to really know who you are and I think you have a right as a bisexual person or as a sexual person, as a person to be with someone who really knows you. To hide that from someone all your life is awful and stressful and unnecessary and someone who doesn't want to be with you because you're bi is no one that you should want to be with. So I don't think the comparison is exactly the same. Yes, I'm when I tell women that they can round their numbers down a little bit or it's understandable that they do round their numbers down a little bit, it is a workaround for the prejudice and judgment and slut-shaming that women are subjected to based on their number. And yeah, bisexual people are sometimes unfairly judged by the evil, monosexual, monolithic community of homos and heteros. Uh, and so maybe you could say, ah, that same awful unfair judgment allows us to what? Lie about who you are. I'm not telling women to lie about who they are. I'm not telling women to tell their partners that they're not straight. I'm not telling women to tell their partners that they're not lesbian or bisexual. I'm not telling women to lie and claim that they are virgins when they are not. I'm telling them to misrepresent, to shade, to round down a little. You can't round by down a little and still be honest. Women who've rounded down a little are still being honest for the most part. 
about who they are and what they are. Straight, not a virgin. Had a number of partners. This number, right? But telling somebody who's bisexual not to reveal that because of the prejudice and to have a partner that they lie to all their lives who never really knows them and they're never really known by is not analogous. It's not an apples to apples comparison. And I just want to address kind of an underlying assumption of, of, of your question and your call that I'm somehow being unfair to bisexual people when I implore them to be out. And I have said that there's something in it for me when bisexual people are out, right? That when people know people who are lesbian, gay, bi or trans, it changes them politically. So there's a benefit in it for gays and lesbians and trans people when bi people are out. And something like 70 plus percent of all bisexual people, according to Pew Research, are not out to their friends and family and the people closest to them in their lives. And it would change the world for queer people if all of those bisexual people came out tomorrow. So yeah, I have a selfish ulterior motive here. But it's better for bi people themselves to be out. It is better for you to be out about who you are. It's better to live – oh, take it from me. It is better to live openly and honestly and to be known again, to be really known by the people in your life and to be loved by the people in your life for who you are. So yeah, you can construct a rationalization whereas by you never have to come out because some people are mean. But I can construct that same rationalization never to come out as gay because some people are mean. And that's bullshit. That's just cowardice. And the, and the victim of that cowardice in the end is yourself. You're the one who's going to suffer 60 plus, 70 plus, 80 plus years in the closet if you never work up the nerve to come out as bi. Hi, Dan Savage. I am a straight female, 42 years old, living in California. My question is this. I have been a naughty massage therapist for roughly 23 years. Now, I have been to school. I am totally certified and licensed, and I have done continuing education. However, I told myself that once my children were old enough that I didn't need to make as much money as I do, and that's one of the reasons why I have been doing naughty massage, if you will, for all these years. It's because I've been a single parent raising children. They're about to all leave the home, and here I am with 23 years of experience with men and their dicks. I've discovered that I have probably touched 5,000 unique dicks. And so I'm curious, Dan, you're a smart guy. Can you help me think of something that I can do with the information that I have of 23 years dealing with men and their dicks and why they get massages and you know, there's got to be something I can do with all of this wealth of information that I have. The advice I'm going to give you is predicated on your kids knowing about this or you not caring that your kids or your family or friends might know about this because I do think that a lot of people would read a memoir called 5,000 Dicks. A lot of people would go see a one-woman show called 5,000 Dicks. You have something to offer the world, somebody who's had 5,000 dicks in her hands and has something to say about all of them, has some observations, some things that you've learned doing this kind of sex work all these years, that would be a hit, I think. That would be something people would want to read about. That would be something – that would be a play that people would go to, sort of like the vagina monologues in a way, the 5,000 dickologues. But – you can't do that play or write that memoir if you don't want your kids to know what mom did to put them through college. If you don't care 
Or if they already know, fucking go for it. I'm sure I'm not the only person who listened to your call and thought, I want to read the book that that woman would write about 22 years of jacking dudes off and what that got her in life besides hangnails and chapped hands. You could use a pseudonym, but you know, if I were your literary agent, I would say sit down and write three or four chapters about your experience and start sending it around. Me and 5,000 Dicks. Uh, Anne of a Thousand Days was a great play about Anne Boleyn. You and the 5,000 Dicks. It could be a wonderful memoir. It could be a big hit. Hey, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old gay-identified male, and I've been in a relationship with my boyfriend for the last seven years. Our relationship has gone through many stages of openness from don't make out with anybody to do anything you want as long as you use protection. Well, recently we have been traveling for work, both of us, and our agreements have been no anal, just oral. So last week I got home from being away for over a month. He's still out of town and I get really wasted and end up hooking up with a dear friend and roommate. The kicker is that this person is a woman and we had unprotected vaginal sex. Um, I'd never came. So this concern is less about pregnancy and just more about what the fuck am I doing? My boyfriend is uh, very hurt and upset by this. To give you some context, we are engaged and we're planning to get married in May. And this particular woman also recently offered to have our children. So this is not the first time one of us has broken our agreements, but this is one of the worst. And uh, I just don't know what I'm doing. Is this like me being an alcoholic and the downsides of alcoholism? Is this me self-sabotaging a relationship? Is this me not being ready to move on to the next step? Is this me being family crazy and trying to get there through any shitty hoop I can? Any insight would be very helpful because I'm clueless and my boyfriend understandably wants some clarity here and I'm unable to provide that. I'm not sure I can help you. I can't read your mind. Those are all really good theories about why you might have fucked this woman when you were drunk. Maybe you are slamming your hand down on the self-destruct button. Maybe you do want out of this relationship. Maybe you are filled with anxiety. There have been times I've been filled with anxiety and thought about ending my relationship and been in a panic, but I didn't run out and have straight sex with female friends. That wasn't my go-to panic room. My panic room is not a uterus. Perhaps yours is your panic room. You have to pass through the vaginal canal with your dick on the way there. Uh, but, but I don't know. I don't know what's going on with you. Only you know what's going on with you. And it doesn't sound like you know exactly what's going on with you. Otherwise, you would know what was going on with you. Does that make sense? Am I repeating myself here? So when you don't know what's going on with you, that's generally a bad time to make lifelong commitments. I'm not saying you need to break up with your boyfriend. I'm not saying you can't continue to entertain the possibility that this woman – uh, could be a surrogate mother for you and your boyfriend if you do decide to start a family at some point. I am saying, though, that you need to take it slow. You need to sit with this. You need to talk with your boyfriend. Thank God you're gay. You know, a one-off, straight, sex, drunk doesn't mean you're not gay. So many straight girls would think that if you were the dude and you had a one-off gay experience in a drunken panic before your wedding – that you would have to be gay, that you couldn't do that if you weren't gay. Your boyfriend isn't standing around saying, you couldn't have done that if you weren't really straight. This doesn't negate your sexuality in his eyes. So you have more latitude and more time to 
play this out. I don't think you're going to be straight when you grow up. I don't think you're not necessarily in love with your boyfriend. It sounds like you guys have a good thing going, but something about your actions would lead me to believe that now is not the time to make that permanent and inalterable, unless you get divorced, lifelong, unless you decide not to be married for life, commitment to your boyfriend. So in conclusion, I can't tell you what's going on with you. You need to think about it a little harder, a little longer to figure out what's going on with you. In the interim, don't get married and don't make a baby with this woman and keep your dick out of her. Keep your dick out of her for now. Perhaps forever. <laughs> it's just a good rule of thumb for gay married dudes. Keep your dick out of her, particularly without a condom on it. A couple of weeks ago, we took a call from, I think the word that the Tumblr justice bloggers use is entitled, straight privileged guy, who was really angry that you know the world was so unfair because gay guys could go to the locker rooms at their gyms and they could see other guys naked, including guys who might not be gay. And he, as a straight guy, couldn't wander into the women's locker room and check out the naked ladies. And, you know, we live in a culture where naked ladies are almost impossible to find. Google it. Go on the internet. Try to find a naked lady. I dare you. There are none out there in the world for straight guys to see. Uh, and I talked about how this is just like you know, one of the rare sort of upsides of being gay. One of the few perks to which we are entitled is this power imbalance around ogling in locker rooms. Um, and Ozzy Totten, who is a writer and performer who works with Second Story, a storytelling collective in Chicago, and he's also the host of the Second Story podcast, uh, didn't like that because he's, in addition to all these things he does with Second Story, he is a gym goer and a get undressed in the locker roomer and a frequent uh, ogle E. Is that right, Ozzy? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that sounded weird to say absolutely. There. Um, I <laughs> do go to the gym quite a bit. And you do not go to the gym and you do not take exquisite care of your body so that other people will look at it. No, at all. I mean, I don't take exquisite care of my body. Like, I eat like shit. And, you know, when I go to the gym, I, like, run on the treadmill for a half hour and that's it, right? But, uh -huh. you know, it, it, it's my time to de-stress and my time to, like, get get my workout of the day and to get my mind running and my blood pumping. You know, it's not – I don't go to the gym for my grinder profile. But So you you wrote to me and you said you get annoyed at this in the gym. You People check each other out. Mm -hmm. you, people masturbate in your direction. There's no masturbating in my direction, but there is some really uncomfortable approaching going on. While you're naked in the locker room, people will have walked up to me three times. I'm dressed in the locker room. People have asked me for my number. Um, my partner, who's also a gym goer, um, was vaguely sexually harassed in the locker room just earlier this week by some dude opening his towel and swinging his dick in his general direction. Mm -hmm. so, and it gets really uncomfortable. There's a very fine line between uh, taking a quick glance and being sexually harassing in the gym locker room. You and know, it's a very fine line that a lot of people struggle with. I, I, would, I would agree with you 100% there. When I said ogling, I was sort of rounding up that, uh, and maybe I shouldn't have used ogling as the phrase. I meant surreptitious checking mm -hmm. out, like a glance, like you can you can you can you see things. Your eyes go places. You see things. I don't think people should make other people uncomfortable, waggling dicks in other people's directions, approaching people and asking their phone number when they're naked. I, I'm not down mm -hmm. with any of that. And unfortunately, those guys can ruin the locker room for everybody. Right. Absolutely. I feel like the gym is this. It's this safe space where where it's a, <laughs> in my mind the gym is a, it's, a, it's a sexless space, if you will. It, it doesn't need that that injection of steamworks that goes on into it, which is a bathhouse here in Chicago. You know, uh -huh. there there needs to be a defining line those two spaces between the locker room and the bathhouse. And I feel like it's especially in my neighborhood in Boys Town in Chicago, a fine line that's very often towed and crossed. 
So what, what do you do? What do we do about these guys? Like most guys in the locker room, you're talking about a handful of guys, right? Most guys in the locker room, mm-hmm. even at gay neighborhoods, even at gyms with huge gay clientele, most guys are taking that sly glance. Most guys aren't humping right. your leg. Uh, what do we do as fags and gym goers about the guys who have no boundaries and no sense in a locker room? Who make, I mean, who make I not mean, just, and I don't want to say this, I want to say this quickly to all the straight guys out there. Listen to what Ozzy is saying. Ozzy, you're a cocksucker, right? Yes, absolutely. If you can't stop, I'm a boy. And I'm a cocksucker. And this shit that goes on in gyms with like a lot of gay clientele, it makes us uncomfortable, straight guys. We feel mm-hmm. your pain. We really do. But what do we do about it? I mean, if you have the balls to tell to tell somebody to stop and to back off, then you can do that, right? But that can be uncomfortable for a lot of people as well. A lot of people are conflict avoidant and just don't want to deal with it and just run out of there and, and go change at home or shower at home. It is crazy how so many people feel that we, you know, when someone else is making us uncomfortable, that we would be doing mm-hmm. something wrong by making them uncomfortable. Somebody is right. creating discomfort. Uh, and we don't want to, you know, make them feel bad, even though they're making us feel bad by saying, dude, stop it. Stop fucking humping my leg. Not that that happens to me much right. in the gym, but I've seen it happen to others. And, and it's a weird thing. Right. Like somebody's hitting on somebody in an uncomfortable way and they won't call them out because they don't want to make that. Because some, there's some basic human decency in you and in me and in your boyfriend that prevents us from acting kind of in self-defense in a way that would make the person mm-hmm. making us uncomfortable feel uncomfortable themselves. Crazy. Absolutely. But we should, Absolutely. We should call it out. I think the thing we have to do, though, is instead of saying, you know, in, in some sort of like gay slut shaming, it's not okay to check people out in the locker room. Maybe the, the mm-hmm. phrase that we should use when we're ogled this way or when you're ogled this way is, dude, be subtler. You That's could, fair. You could be subtler. <laughs> you can take a look at my ass in the gym, but you need to be subtler. Not, it's not okay yeah. to ever look at somebody's ass in the gym because that is one of the reasons we all go to the gym. Exactly. And like Ozzy, just to get you on the record, to nail you down here, but mm-hmm. 60 minutes about this, you check guys out in the locker room too, don't you? Every now and then, of course. It's hard not to. But you're subtle. I'm subtle, exactly. And, you and, take a quick peek. And in that subtlety, there is sort of respect for someone else's yes, comfort. If absolutely. you're subtle and it's undetectable checking out, then you've sort of gotten your look, but you've gotten it away where you didn't make that person feel like unsafe or uncomfortable. Absolutely. Anything else before we let you go? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say in response to that man who called in and had his straight privilege issues going on, I think the, the number one argument for gender-neutral locker rooms isn't anything to make it fairer for straight men, but it's to make it fairer for people who don't identify as either gender. And I think that that, that was a point that you left out in your original response that I thought was really important to make. Do you think that many women would go to gyms with gender-neutral locker rooms that have been created to make people That's who do not identify as gender comfortable? I don't think those would be safe spaces for women or for gender-neutral people or for trans people, really. I think that gender-neutral bathrooms or gender-neutral locker rooms in a big gym would attract mm-hmm. a lot of the wrong kind of straight guys. That's probably true. Maybe it's an everybody gets an individual locker room or something like that, you know? Like those bathrooms, actually, you see them in European clubs where the toilets all Mm -hmm. have doors and the toilets are private and then the sinks are all one big public area, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe we Mm -hmm. need little private changing rooms, but everything else in the locker room is shared. Yeah. Thanks for calling, Ozzy. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day, Dan. Bye. Hi, Dan. My name's Robert. I'm a straight guy and I'm having a kind of silly problem in which uh, I'm stuck between two girls and I know it's not something that one should complain about 
as a straight guy, but uh, it's actually been proved, proving to be really difficult. Um, the, the one girl I have quite a long history with, uh, she and I dated on and off through college. I'm 25 now. And uh, it's always been very rocky. We break up a lot. Uh, we're passionate, but we also fight. Uh, things have been smoothing out lately. But uh, she's kind of elusive. We still see each other. And she has a two-year-old son from another partner. And the second girl is someone that I just met a few weeks ago. And she lives a little closer to me. And she and I hit it off really well. And uh, and it's, it's been great. And I... I I want to know what you think about, you know, is, is it a, a bad sign on, on, on the, that the first girl and I have been rocky for so long? Does that mean that I should get out? Or is that a good sign that maybe we're, we like each other enough to try sticking it out? I feel kind of bad. I haven't uh, told either of them yet about the other. And uh, it's starting to affect the way I treat both of them. But I feel like I just need to make a fucking choice. Um, and it's really tough. This is going to date me. Whenever I hear a call like yours, it just starts playing in my head. Torn between two lovers, feeling like a fool, loving both of you is breaking all the rules, unless you're polyamorous, in which case it's not breaking any of the rules. Um, when you're torn between two lovers and you feel like a fool and polyamory isn't in the cards, you have to pick. You have to pick. Um, in this instance, you know you have this high drama, high conflict, high passion relationship with woman A uh, who has a two-year-old kid. And then along comes this other woman that you have, you know, a connection with. You really feel something for her and there's not a lot of drama yet. Maybe you're the problem. Uh, maybe you're the drama generator, not the woman in the other relationship. And, and I think you should, you know, if that was my choice, I would choose woman B. Just because, uh, well, for two reasons. Because you want passion without a lot of drama and a lot of conflict. And some people mistake drama and conflict and throwing things and arguing for love. Uh, and it ain't love. It's, it's a side effect. But it's not what love is supposed to do. I also think it might be best for this kid if you and this woman have a high drama, high conflict relationship and maybe it's just the alchemy of you two coming together that creates this conflict and drama. Maybe it's not all you. Maybe it's not all her. But there's something about the combo of you two that creates a lot of stress and chaos. That kid doesn't need that necessarily in his life or her life at this time. Might be better for that kid if you ended things cleanly with his mom so she could move on and find a partner where there's still going to be conflict, there's still going to be some drama, but not as much conflict and drama as stress as you two together as a combo seem to generate. So go off and explore with this new woman and see what happens. And if there's as much conflict and drama as ever, then it's you. Then you are the common denominator. You are the problem. Uh, but in the best interest of this kid, I think, you should end things with his mom. Hey, Dan and the tech-savvy at-risk youngsters. I um, got a question, long-time listener, loved the whole thing. Um, and, you know, I, I know generally how to handle the fetish, which I have. Just a foot fetish feels mild, I know, on the spectrum. However, it still did a number on me when I was younger. And I still have a lot of residual, you know, shame and coming out, came out in a previous relationship, felt very good and supported and all that stuff, and becoming a lot healthier around it. I know a lot of times you talk about, you know, it's, it's really is somehow other people's business, kind of who you stick your dick into. What you do in the bedroom, however, is not their business. And in, in a way, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, part of me doesn't want to hide this part of me to any 
one, really. I mean, though I am heterosexual and that's the default assumption of society, I don't really need to come out per se. I still, there's a part of me that wants to be less shamed. And there is a lot of shaming of the kink community on from the spectrum of the foot fetish all the way to, you know, however heavy it gets. So there is a benefit to talking about it with people. However, that really is how I act in the bedroom. How are you going to let people know? How am I going to fully get over the shame of it without just being proud about it, open about it to my friends and some extent loved ones? That's my question. Joining me by phone from his home in swank and glamorous Brooklyn, Daniel Bergner. He's the author of The Other Side of Desire and the new book, What Do Women Want? But we're having him on to talk about uh, The Other Side of Desire and your question, caller. Um, in that book, The Other Side of Desire, which I've recommended before and in my column and I'm recommending again, it's four portraits of people whose erotic lives are, quoting Daniel here, outside the norm. Let's quickly, before we get to this call, talk about norm when we talk about erotics and why that's a problem. Well, because it sort of calls up the word normal, and I think we are all, I hope some of us, happily abnormal in our sexual lives and idiosyncratic and experimental. Um, I just use the word norm for truly lack of any way better to sum up that these are four portraits of people whose sexual drives might take them to places that a lot of us don't go. And one of the portraits uh, in the book, a very moving portrait uh, of a foot fetishist named Jacob. And I was outraged when I read that chapter. Um, and if you ever, if I can ever show you my copy, uh, I'm scribbling all over the margins as I read about Jacob because he's so conflicted and so just burdened with shame about his foot fetish that he can't express it. He can't share it with the person that he loves. And he actually is medicated to to tamp down his libido and desire to, in an attempt to eradicate his harmless foot fetish. Right. So I'd love to see your copy if you ever come visit in swank and glamorous Brooklyn. We will <laughs> examine your copy of the book, but exactly right. I mean, he's tormented by his erotic self, which to me is in many ways, his central, his core self, so full of shame and ultimately decides he'd rather live without a sexuality, would rather medicate his sexuality out of existence than come to terms with it in some way. And I think it speaks to how uncomfortable we as a culture still are with the force of sexuality. And so anything that falls outside the norm tends to be internalized by people with a lot of shame. And the really tragic part of this is that two, or I guess it's been almost three years since I wrote that portrait, I got word that Jacob killed himself. So, you know, uh. devastating news. I think a warning to everyone. One of the nice things that's come out of it is his father has been in touch with me a lot. Just He says over and over, please tell everyone you can to hug your children. I think that's his way to say, please tell everyone you can to be understanding, to be empathetic, uh, and going beyond that really to try to remove the very shame that we're talking about. Do you think it was the shame around his foot fetishism that drove Jacob to suicide? Was there other factors? Well, there was certainly a long-term depression. And then that begs the question, 
is the foot fetish and the feeling of alienation and of isolation. You know, the cause of the depression, is it merely contributing to it? In any case, certainly his sexuality was something that, you know, was just on his mind all the time Mm -hmm. in a very shameful way. And so, yeah, I think at the very least it played a strong part in his killing himself. Why would he agree to be the subject of a profile in your book? And sort of in a way, although it was, you know, a pseudonym for him and and he didn't come out, in a way, you know, to publicly discuss and talk about this thing that he was so on the rack about and shame and felt such shame about. Why why would he agree to be in the book? And do you think in in any way that that contributed to to his to his suicide or the, the, the depression spiral that he wound up on that ended in a suicide? That is such a question, obviously difficult for me to think about and impossible for me to answer. It's possible. In any case, I always feel a kind of responsibility. I also think he probably took part and took part eagerly in the book because, one, I mean, I'm there to listen and, you know, listen at great length. Um, And two, I think he really wanted to be understood um, Mm -hmm. by a much wider audience. And this was a way to do that, a way that felt almost safe, probably because I was changing names and uh, even some other identifying details. Uh, and he struggled the way to share he struggled so and in such isolation and uh, you know my reading of the chapter as I read it, even though I you know disagreed with the medical advice he was getting and I wanted him to sort of embrace who he was sexually and be out about it and to to set the shame aside and and celebrate and love himself for who he was and enjoy what he enjoyed in a way, I felt having his struggle uh, which to have it acknowledged to have it to have some acknowledgement of what he was going through and, and how hard he was working at defeating this thing, uh, that was what I took away from that chapter as I read it, that that was important to him, that he was struggling in silence without any credit from anyone, really, uh, and he had, in his mind, achieved something by defeating his foot fetish, and, and nobody knew that he had that's done a, this. That's a really interesting reading that he felt an achievement in, in defeating the fetish um, but and I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah, go ahead. But ultimately, fetish cannot be defeated. You, you know, you can't you can't tamp down your, your your sexuality. You want what you want. The heart wants what it wants, as Woody Allen tragically once said. And in the end, sexuality will out. I think so. I think it is so essential to who we are that not only will it out, it probably should out in all but a very. A small minority of cases. This is what it means to be a human being. And I think he knew that as well. There was this one very painful moment that closes the story where he talks about identifying so closely uh, with uh, the story of the Phantom of the Opera and feeling as though he's lived underground and as though he's been a monster mm. all his life. And if only the world were reversed so that, you know, 90% of people or the majority of people would feel, you know, his sexual drive, 
he would have felt such a sense of relief and relief. And when I read stories and, like that, I always want to grab, you know, and I get letters like that from people. I just want to shake them and say, there are places you can go. There are rooms you can enter where you will have that feeling of being in the 90% of all people. <laughs> you know, that is what is for, you know, when I was 18 years old, I walked into a gay bar for the first time. That was that feeling like, oh my God, I'm in a, I'm in a space where I'm the normal one. And he could have had that experience at a foot fetish party, at foot, uh, and foot fetish clubs, uh, foot fetish communities online. Whatever your kink, whatever your fetish, if there's consent and there's no harm. So whatever your fetish is, whatever your desire is, if it can be realized consensually and without harming anyone or harming a child or harming an animal, there is a space for you. There is a world for you out there, a micro world, where you are the 90%, where you're going to be part of the majority. Yeah, and I, I think that's absolutely right that's one comfort that is out there. I'd say the challenge, though, is how we all want to make our sexuality integral to our lives. And I guess Jacob didn't see a chance to do that. And, he, you know, he couldn't find his way to that level of self-acceptance let alone seeking that kind of acceptance from the people around him. Now, now, in the other side of desire, in this chapter, you go into foot fetishism and the foot fetishist sort of scene and world. You really unpack fetishes and paraphilias in a, in a deep and thoughtful way. What is your advice for this caller who says that you know part of him doesn't want to hide this aspect of himself from anyone and he wants to be out about it? Right. So I I thought about this you know quite a lot and. You know, one one place to start, I think, is just to recognize one of the sources of the shame is in, lodged in the culture and its own discomfort with just the sheer power of sexuality. Forget the kind of sexuality. Sexuality is so powerful, we want to regulate it, and when it falls outside the norm, you know, we want to regulate it all the more, and that gets sort of impressed upon us as individuals and, you know, can be the source of a lot of shame, a lot of self-condemnation. Then the question is, you know, do you find relief from that shame by being completely open about the particular sexuality? And I think this is where things get so tricky. I I would say struggling towards self-acceptance, complete self-acceptance has got to be the first step. You've got to find the relief there first, and then think about finding people you can trust who will give you affirmation. I'm not sure that as a culture on the whole, we're so trustworthy that your caller could seek uh, that kind of relief from shame by being completely open about his particular sexuality. I'm not sure that's a safe way to go. I think there's a middle ground, though. You know, there's the coming out model that the call and caller implicitly is referencing, which is like being gay, coming out as gay. Like you sit your parents down, you tell them you're gay. You tell your friends you're gay. You get in a new workplace, you come out to your coworkers. You're kind of never done coming out unless you're, you know, an asshole like me, right? Um, and, and there's that coming out model of fighting down, f- pushing through the stigma and the shame and creating a better world for queer people by queer people coming out. There's another model, though, I think that may be more applicable here when it comes to certain kinks or, or sexual interests, which is not actively coming out, not telling everyone, not letting everyone know, but not giving a shit who does know. You can come out to everyone, make sure everybody knows, or you can just not give a shit who knows and how they found out. If you're into feet and you go on a date with somebody and you're going to be intimate with them them for the first time, 
go to town on their feet. And if they tell their friends, who cares? And if it comes up, you know, it gets back to you through the gossip mill. Yeah, who cares? Yeah, I'm into feet. I think feet are hot, just like you think tits are hot. And you can just be that kind of out blasé about it as opposed to actively out about it. Right. I think that's a great way to put it. And again, that brings me back to the idea of self-acceptance. I think to have that who gives a shit attitude about who knows, you've got to feel that to a fair degree for yourself. And I think that's sort of that's the beginning of the struggle. Those things might happen side by side, but I do think there's something to be gained by thinking through what the source of shame is and thus getting through that, you know, working through that so that this caller is able to have the very attitude and feel the very celebration that you're describing. Daniel Bergner, he's the author of The Other Side of Desire uh, and also the author of the new book, What Do Women Want? They are both terrific and informative and smart and insightful, and I encourage everyone to get your hands on both and read both. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us, Daniel. Thanks, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old woman, and I've been in a relationship with my boyfriend for a little over two years. I feel like we've gotten to the point where sex isn't as exciting, somewhat routine. However, the other night, we started fooling around while taking a shower and ended up having amazing, amazing sex afterwards. And the next day, we had a conversation about it, and he said he got really turned on because we were cleaning ourselves. He took the opportunity to let me know that he can't really get turned on if he knows I haven't showered that day. He started telling me that sometimes he gets turned off by certain smells. I probed him on this a little because I believe I'm a hygienic person. I've been with other guys who've loved my smell, so I asked if it was a vaginal odor. He said no and cringed and said, ugh, I hate that I have to say this and told me that he gets really turned off when he can smell my ass when he's fucking me from behind. I was totally shocked. I mean, I try my best to be clean, but he said he can still smell it sometimes. He also told me he's had this problem with other women. Even though I feel like I have a mature attitude about bodies and sex, I still became totally mortified at this confession, and he immediately regretted bringing it up. The best I could do was tell him I'd do my best to be clean before sex, but... I don't know. I feel like there's no way I can really help this issue. I feel like, I feel kind of like you should just suck it up, deal with it, and switch positions if he has to. So I asked if he thought I should shower every time that we have sex, which I think is crazy and, like, takes the spontaneity away from sex. And he was like, oh, no, definitely not. That'd be way too much. But then what the fuck does he want me to do? I don't know what else I could do. Um... The other thing I feel I should mention is that I feel like he has OCD about cleanliness. He has a strict shower routine, and he also needs to wear socks inside at all times because he doesn't want his feet to get dirty. And I've even tried telling him that I think some of his behaviors demonstrate OCD, but I also think he's kind of in denial about it. So, I don't know, Dan. I'm still feeling weird about the whole thing, and I feel like I'll probably be self-conscious about it for a while. So I'd really appreciate any of your thoughts. Ass. Ass sometimes smells like ass. Sometimes ass has a lovely ass odor. Sometimes ass just smells like concentrated human pharaohs and sweat. Uh, and sometimes ass smells like funk, like dirt, like shit, like yuck. And ass needs a bath. And someone whose nose is directly over your ass as you bend over to the doggy style position – 
could be in a better position to judge whether your ass smells like delicious ass or sparkly clean ass or somebody needs to take a shower ass. This guy, though, sounds like he's a little nuts. He sounds like some one of those people who believes that any human scent at all is evidence of uncleanliness and dirt and filth. And so what do you do? Well, you don't have sex in the doggy style position uh, anymore. I don't, not because I don't think you should, not because I think you're doing anything wrong, but I don't think you're ever going to be not self-conscious about the doggy style position with this dude ever again because of what you know now, because of how everything has shaken out. Every time you get into the doggy style position, you're going to be thinking, uh, I wonder if my ass smells and you're going to be pulled out of the sex. So I would, if I were you, I would reserve the doggy style position for clean, clean, we just jumped in and out of the shower sex. And if he wants to have sex in the doggy style position, it'll be a little less spontaneous because you're going to jump and shower or you're going to drag his ass to the shower or he's going to suggest a shower or whatever. Having one position that you can't sort of get into spontaneously is not going to drain all spontaneity from your sex life. It just will be one extra little hurdle that you have to jump when you want to do that one particular thing. That's not uncommon when it comes to ass and sex for there being a couple of extra hurdles that have to be leapt before people can get into a position or get into an activity that involves ass. So you won't get a lot of sympathy from me there, but his comments, you know, have made you very self-conscious. And so you need to sort of roll with that. Or you need to make that leap and not give a shit what he thinks about whether your ass smells like ass or shit or whatevs. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 25-year-old straight dude from New York. I've been in a relationship for almost five years, more than five years now. We're mostly okay most of the time and we're really well suited to each other and all that. You know, sex is okay and but um, every now and then we sort of Something happens where, and I still don't know what, how it actually goes, whether I disengage and I start to sort of be a little bit checked out and that starts to get under her skin. She then sort of blows up at me and just says all these terrible things to me and tries to get me to leave and I freak out. Like, and that makes everything worse. It's like she's still sort of yell at me because she has like anger management problems and is trying to express how she feels, and when I get freaked out by how like cool she's being, I that becomes what this argument's about. That becomes what the situation's about, and then nothing gets fixed, and it just sort of then it's about calming everything down, and then she still feels like even when she calms down, it's still well, I you're still how can I ever? I can't believe that you're going to be back involved with us. You're not going to clean up. You're not going to you know try to make me feel better. I she feels like she does all this work for me. She you know found me uh, stuff to do and she's, you know, trying to take control and find me friends because I don't have that many friends and it's hard for me to make friends and, and she feels like I'm not doing my my part for her and I, I don't know what to do. We're, we've been fighting for like three days now. It's been really bad. It, it, it had been really good recently. It had, This hadn't happened for a long time. She'd started seeing somebody and dealing with her anger issues. I've been seeing somebody and trying to be more engaged and, more, and like on top of things I'm taking I have ADD, I'm taking Adderall now, I, everything's different. But she hadn't been seeing her therapist for a few weeks because of financial reasons. And suddenly, very suddenly, like on Thursday, she just flew off at me all of a sudden. She woke, like, went, went, took a nap, was okay, woke up from her nap and screamed at me and was like, I can't take it anymore. If she can't take it anymore, then it's over. If you guys 
make each other miserable, you should probably think about ending it because a relationship should bring more good and more positive into your life than negative, right? But you might want to kick the can down the road, just three months. Maybe you guys could come to terms about that, that we're not going to solve all of our problems with one screaming argument right now, but you're in therapy for your anger issues. I'm seeing someone about my ADD and now I'm on meds, that the problems that we've been having in this relationship, they they may be on the cusp of resolving themselves, not resolving themselves, you guys resolving them actively, her by seeking help with her anger, uh, which may or may not always be justified, you by getting help with your ADD, which has made you more dependent on her emotionally and socially than she can clearly handle, la-da-da-da. You guys are working on that. And so instead of ending it right now at this point of maximum conflict and misery, recognize that you may be defusing these bombs at the heart of your relationship. You may be diffusing her anger issues. You may be actively diffusing with the help of your therapist the, the ADD and the negative ways it's impacted your relationship and driven her up the wall, which then trigger her anger issues. So just agree to just not address it for a while. Agree to focus on what's good, hang out, not commit to being together forever. She doesn't have to agree to like – hang out for the next three months and that means she's stuck with you for the rest of her fucking life, which might make her blow up or might make you freak out. Just say, you know what? Let's leave this alone for three or six months. Let's enjoy just being together and knowing each other and be social with each other and be good to each other and kind to each other and see where we are in three months or six months as you work with your therapist and I work with mine. And then at that point, perhaps in a calmer place, where she has a better grip on her anger issues and you have a better grip on your ADD and your social anxieties, then you guys can make a decision about whether you're going to stay together or not. And you'll be able to make that decision at a point where you're not screaming and yelling and throwing things and things don't all seem so dire and horrible. Hey, Dan. I'm 24, lesbian identified, living in the St. Louis metro area. I have a question about coming out. I wanted to know what would it the appropriate way to come out to my family, whether it should be by phone, email, or mailing a letter. I'm pretty sure that coming out to my family would have a negative backlash. About two months ago, I went to Chicago and ended up meeting with some relatives for lunch. I witnessed an unsettling conversation between my grandmother, my mom's aunt, and my great-grandmother about a relative at a recent family reunion, who in their words looked and acted like a boy. They displayed extreme disgust about this. I was wearing a pride bracelet, and during this conversation, my grandmother shot me a look of disapproval. So if anything, whether she knows or not, I am positive that me coming out would not go over well. What really concerns me, though, is that when I do come out to mom, to them, that my mom would be caught in the middle. My family loves to gossip, and it can be extremely hurtful, especially my grandmother. I have already gone through a very bad backlash with my parents over this, and now my sexuality is something we don't talk about. My mom thinks I am possessed by a demon and at some point in my life went through a traumatic event that initiated it, which couldn't be further from the truth. With my dad, I never actually came out to him until after he came across some non-existent picture on Facebook and harassed my best friend and her father. We got in a big argument and she said some hurtful, he said some hurtful things with pure disgust. I can't seem to get over the shame I feel about being gay. It is something I struggle with constantly and was hoping that coming out completely out of the closet will relieve at least some of the shame I feel about my sexuality. That maybe I can at least gain some self-acceptance and self-esteem if this wasn't hanging over my head. Any advice you can give me would be appreciated. Thanks, Dan. Have a great day. 
So when I got you on the phone, you said that you were listening to the podcast. So I, I called you yes. from the podcast as you were listening to a podcast. So you're not a new listener. Yes. <laughs> no. So you've probably heard me say this before, that the, the trick that you have to, to play on yourself, the, the, the shift that all like young queer people, young queer adults we need to make as we're coming out to our families, is we need to move from fearing their judgment and their rejection to making them fear ours, right? So your grandma gives right. you a look because you've got a pride bracelet on. She shoots you a look. You flip her the fuck off. What, your grandma is going to be dead, soon who gives a shit that she gossips if all she's doing is telling the truth that you're a dyke who cares and if she thinks that's a terrible thing you know what that's proof that your grandmother is a terrible person not there's anything wrong with you but there's something wrong with her and she should fear you telling people that your grandmother is a homophobic hateful piece of shit which is what you're going to tell people if she acts like one not that you should fear that your grandma is fucking insane and is going to say you're possessed by a lesbian demon which is fucking crazy talk, right? Yeah. So I understand, and I'm not being glib about the way in which you were raised. You're only 24 years old. It sounds like you were raised in a really homophobic and hyper sort of batshitty religious environment, and that can really put the zap on your head when it turns out that you're queer, when your sexuality brings you into conflict with this bullshit that's been foisted on you as a child, right? And it takes time to burn through that. So I don't want to make you feel bad about the fact that you haven't sort of made this leap yet, but you can make this leap. There's nothing wrong with you. There's something wrong with them. That's what you need to tell you. That's what you need to convince yourself of. You're fine. They're fucked. And they should worry about you telling people that. Let them gossip. What are they going to say about you? What are they going to say? That you're a lesbian? Right? Right. She's kind of a vindictive person, so she could really say anything. Let it her, doesn't even have to be the fact that I'm a lesbian. Let, so. her, let her say whatever hateful bullshit she wants to say. You do not have to see her. You do not have to go to dinner with her. Mm-hmm. You are an adult. You get to choose the people that are a part of your family now. You get to make your own family now. And our families of origin, our biological families, they have to earn their right to remain in our adult families. Just because... Your mom jumped out of her twat and you jumped out of your mom's twat does not give your grandmother endless access to abuse you emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, or in any other way. And if she can't treat you decently, have nothing to do with her. Hi. Is she sitting on $8 billion? Are you, do you stand to inherit hundreds of millions of dollars if she dies and likes you at the moment of her death? I honestly don't know, but I am about... 85% sure she has like some of my money. Ugh. Like when I was a little, my mom like gave her my birthday money to put in a, an account. And every now and then she'll send me a few hundred. Uh huh. I'm assuming it's from that account. So, so yeah. Um, but it's, we're not talking hundreds of millions of dollars. Not that I know of now. We're talking at best a few thousand dollars. Yeah. Would you pay a few thousand dollars to someone to make your grandmother go away? Not to kill her. I'm just talking about hiring a hitman. But if you could like say, I'm going to spend $5,000 and I don't, you know, here's $5,000. I don't have to see you ever again. That's a price I'd be willing to pay not to have a hateful shit bag in my life all the time. Here, grandma, here's $5,000. Go away. Oh, keep the money, grandma, because I'm a lesbian. You keep that money. And that was money well spent. That's what you have to do. You have to make that shift. And you'll feel better for it because right now, you know, when you go to – what's reinforcing your shame is you go to lunch with your shitty family 
of origin. They say these shitty things and you don't speak up in your own defense because you're afraid of what? That they will do what? That they will judge you, that they'll say shitty things to you. Well, they're judging you and they've already said shitty things to you. They, they're, they're doing what you're afraid of already. And the only way to get them to a better place where they're not being shitty to you is to stand up to them and say, you can be in my life if you're not going to be shitty. If you're going to be shitty, you can't be in my life because I don't need shit in my life. Period. The end. And then do you have a girlfriend? Do you have queer friends? Do you have straight friends who love you for who you are? Um, I have a whole array of those. I actually am in a <clears throat> kind of a rocky kind of on and off thing with my ex, sort of not my ex. It's very fucking confusing and I'm kind of done with it really at this point. But but you've had girlfriends um, before and you will have girlfriends again and you have friends, straight and queer, who love you for right. who you are, right? So it's, right. Not, it's not like telling your shitty family for now, you know, you're on probation and fuck you, go away, means spending Christmas alone in your apartment crying, right? Right. You will have someplace to go. You will have people to be with who love you, where you're not buying into the shame, where you're not subjecting yourself to more of the abuse that has you struggling with feelings of shame in the first place, Right. Because now, now, you know, growing up, you can't control who has access to you as a child. You can't control who's being shitty to you. And so the damage done when you're a child by these shitty things that were done and said to you as a queer kid growing up, you had no agency there. That You were a victim, pure and simple. But now as an adult, you're victimizing yourself. That's part of why you feel such shame. You're putting yourself in this position where you are being beaten up by these people who don't you don't have to be in that position. You don't have to allow them to beat you up anymore. And so you're kind of beating yourself up by walking into that room, by sitting there and having lunch with your shitty grandmother and letting her say shitty things, giving you shitty looks without looking at her and saying, what? And fuck you, by the way. It's, 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 just, it's, it's not that hard. It's just you have, to make, you have to flip that switch in your brain. You're going to make them afraid of you. You're possessed by the lesbian demon. They should be afraid of you. <laughs> You're going to put your lesbian horns on that look like little tennis rackets on Martina Navratilova, right? You're going to put your lesbian horns on and fuck them, <laughs> fuck them, fuck them, fuck them. Does seeing your grandmother bring joy into your life? No. Don't see your grandmother except at her funeral. Seeing her at, her at her wake, that might bring a little joy into your life. Does seeing your mother bring joy into your life? Yes. Then see your mother. But don't see her as often as she might like to see you if she can't treat you decently. Drop this demon bullshit. Educate herself. Learn and grow as so many other parents of queer kids have learned and grown. She can do it. But she won't do it if you don't demand it. If you don't make your presence in her life conditional upon that growth and that learning. Right now, your family uses your shame and their judgment and your fear of it to shut you up, to keep you from coming out, to keep you from telling the truth. Once you tell the truth, that judgment and shame of theirs, they, once they realize they can't control you with it anymore, what value does it have to them? It, it suddenly becomes worthless currency. Right now, they can lay that on the table. They can spend that hate currency to control you. Once you say you can't control me with that shit anymore, it's worthless. And they can either cling to it and fuck them if they do or they'll get over it and they'll stop it. You have the power to make them stop it. They might not stop it. I'm not saying I'm not I'm not guaranteeing that they'll stop it. But they'll never stop it so long as you allow them to shut you up with it. It'll never end. It'll always be like this. Your grandmother will always be a hateful shitbag. Your mother will always be on this demon kick. Your father will always be a dick. 
Because right now, all of that's working. It's working to control you, to keep you from coming out to your extended family, to keep you from being fully out to everyone in your life. So throw it all back in their faces and maybe they'll get over it and maybe they won't. But you know what? Either way, you win. Either you have a family that comes around and loves and supports you or they're all fucking out of your life and you don't have to deal with their shit anymore. And you can invest your emotional time and your energy and your love in people who are capable of loving you. And it's, right. and it's their loss. And your grandmother is going to be dead soon. And you'll feel so much better about being alive if you've told her the truth before she dies. And if it pisses the old bitch off, good. You've heard me say all this before on the podcast, have you not? Yes. <laughs> so do it. Now I've said it to you personally. Do it. Okay. Are you going home for Christmas? Are you going home for Thanksgiving? Um, I'm pretty much planning by year. I'm thinking I'm just going to do what I did last year and just camp on someone's couch for the holidays. <laughs> so you're not going to see him? Um, I don't know yet. Okay. Well, if you don't go home. My mom, probably. Okay. Well, if you don't go home, make sure that they know why. That you don't have a lot of incentive to come home knowing they're just going to be shitty to you about being queer. So you'd rather hang right. with your friends and couch surf. Hang with people who are going to treat you with love and respect. Act like Christians around Christmas as opposed to your family who act like demons around Christmas. Right. You know you can do it. Should I do the more indirect and mailing a letter and email or just do the personal phone call and let it just go down the chain of However you, feel, however you feel safest doing it. If, if going and telling people face-to-face is going to result in ugly scenes that you shouldn't have to subject yourself to, don't subject yourself to them. Send your grandmother a letter. Send your aunts a letter. Send everybody a letter. Change your Facebook relationship status. Whatever, however you want to come out, come out. However you feel safest coming out. Some people feel safe coming out face-to-face. I don't think in a family where people call you a demon if you're a lesbian – uh, you owe it to them to come out to them face to face if they're just going to seize that opportunity to be shitbags. So send right. them a letter. Dear Grandma, I am a lesbian. Fuck you. Love, Susie. <laughs> Make them right. afraid of you. Use this demon shit. They already think you're possessed by a demon. Use it. <laughs> I'm a lesbian demon. I'm coming to eat all the pussy on earth. Arr. Show up in a clothes draped in red and pink covered in vaginas with horns exactly yeah a pentagram made of vulvas (laughs) better to be rid of a family than not that's not on your side than to have a family in your life who isn't you're totally right go do it go email grammy right now tell her i said she's a bitch on the on a podcast (laughs) people can hear us talking about what a bitch she is and i had the same grandmother i had the exact same grandmother terry and i sent her a birth announcement when our son was born she mailed it back so I'm not telling you to do something I didn't do, and I'm not, I haven't, I, I've had experiences like the one you're having with a grandmother. And now we laugh about it. We laugh about what a hateful old yeah. bitch she was. Yeah. Now she's a punchline. She's a story I tell at dinner parties. I win. She's dead. Okay. Thank you. Pep talk. Oh, this Rooney we had today. Good luck. Give us a call in six months or a year. Let us know how you're doing. Okay. Bye. Hey, Dan. I am a 22-year-old recent college graduate living on the East Coast. Uh, I have been with my girlfriend now for just over a year, uh, and we have a really great relationship. The sex has been really great our entire time that we've been together. Uh, we communicate really well. Everything is really great, <laughs> of course, except for one thing. And that thing seems to be that she has a knack for getting drunk at parties and making out with people. The people that she usually makes out with are 
friends or people that she feels really close to, and it's never um, strangers or anything like that. But I'm still really, 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 really uncomfortable with it. And I have asked her many times. We've had many conversations about her softness and that it is a it makes it really difficult for me to trust her. But she still continues to go out to parties and get drunk and make out with people and then we get in huge fights about it and I feel like shit. Um, so I, I don't really know what to do. I, I don't want to break up with her. I don't. We live together. Uh, we have an amazing life together and I really do see a future with her. But um, this one thing really makes it difficult for me to trust her. When you ask someone to change many, many times and there is no change, there probably won't be change. So she's not going to change and that means you're going to have to change. Doesn't mean you have to accept this, making out with other people at parties, with friends, whatever it is that she does when she's drunk that you don't like. You can break up with her over that. That can be a deal breaker, a relationship ender for you. Uh, or you can change your attitude about it. You can have her in your life and put up with this making out or you can not have her in your life and not have to put up with this making out. That's the that's the dilemma you face. That's the choice you have to make. Is knowing that your girlfriend sometimes gets drunk and makes out with other people at parties a price of admission that you're willing to pay to be in this relationship with her that is otherwise so great? If so, pay it. Shut up. Live with it. If not, you might have to end this relationship. Maybe realizing that it is a relationship extinction level violation for you is the wake-up call that she needs to stop it and you could think about taking her back and then see if it actually does stop. But I don't think it's going to stop necessarily. I think it should stop. Maybe she should fucking drink less. Maybe you should change the conversation from making out with friends, which maybe she regards as some sort of hippy-dippy, friendly, lovey, touchy-feely thing to do and shift it to one of you don't act like yourself when you're drunk. You do things when you're drunk that you say you won't do uh, and that's an issue about drinking, not necessarily an issue about who she makes out with. But I look at – you know, I listen to your call. I think about your situation and I just see a price of admission situation. Your girlfriend is clearly going to do this. You've asked her to change. It hasn't. She won't. So is it a price of admission you're willing to pay? Yes. Then pay it. No. Then end it. Hi, Dan. Recently, I started dating a guy and we're at the point where we're talking about our fetishes and being open and communicating and GGG and that's all great. And he threw me for a loop when he said he had a fetish that's macrophilia. And my mind instantly went to a podcast a few years ago where you were talking about fetishes that people have that are safe but totally unrealizable. And I was wondering if you had any specific tips or anecdotes for dealing with fetishes that are totally safe um, and I'm fine with it but totally unrealizable and where I could look for advice and what I can do and if you have any anecdotes from researchers and stuff like that, that would be great. I'm not thinking there's a lot of research out there into necrophilia. It is, though, realizable. You can totally fuck a dead person if you're willing to go there. And Jesse Baring in his book Perv unpacks a thought experiment where you can 
get to a place where necrophilia can be acted on in a completely consensual manner. People are necrophiliacs. They join necrophilia clubs. They will their bodies after their natural deaths to the club. Then people will object and say, you know, their friends and family will be outraged. OK, the club are all people who've never married and never had children and they're – all of their relatives have predeceased them. So there's nobody left over, no grieving parent who has to think about their darling child's dead body being molested uh, to worry about no feelings can be hurt and still people can't sign off on it because ick, not because any harm is being done. It's a really challenging chapter to read. Uh, particularly if you're like me and you are squicked the fuck out by necrophilia as almost all of us are except necrophiliacs, which brings me to you know the reason I'm playing your call and the point I wanted to make, which is why is this guy dating necrophilia muggles, I guess we'll call you? Like you're not into necrophilia and it used to be difficult for people who are into necrophilia to find each other safely and anonymously. The guy with the foot fetish earlier in the show, imagine having to come out about this one. Not possible. But the internet allows people with the craziest fucking kinks and interests, however stigmatized, however impossible they might be to come out about, to find each other, to really find and create a community and hopefully a community where no one is being murdered and <laughs> raped and no bodies are being dug up in cemeteries in the middle of the night. So I don't know why this guy's out there dating normals uh, and coming out to them when he can go online and find like-minded necrophiliacs perhaps to inflict himself on. You seem really open-minded though and uh, kudos for you. But I think GGG, uh, good giving in game, game uh, for anything within reason. And I think necrophilia is outside of that, the GGG portfolio purview, whatever. And you can hear my squeakiness just rolling through my voice right now. And I apologize about that if you are a necrophiliac whose feelings I have hurt. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm calling in response to episode 367 about the mother who was attending the bigoted church. I'm just calling because near the end of the call, she still seemed to be humming and hawing and didn't really seem convinced to leave the church, in my opinion. Um, I don't disagree with any of the advice you gave her. I think she could really damage her son, and I think there's lots of other options out there. There's no reason she needs to stay at this church. And I think it's great that she's not directly funding the hate by tithing to the church, but I still think that your response was too nice. To be a little blunter with her, I think she needs to realize that she's part of the problem. The question and response really made me wonder how many not all like that Christians out there attend bigoted churches and don't speak up or don't leave the church. Uh, and that's a huge problem because it just adds to their numbers. Like you said, it's a numbers game for them, and it makes it seem like there are more bigots out there than there actually are, which is exactly what the bigots want. So I guess I hope you convinced her. I hope she leaves, and I hope she does not continue to contribute to the homophobia problem. Hi, this is a call in response for the woman who needed to leave her homophobic church. Uh, I just want to say a few things. One, I'm gay, and uh, I was part of a church like that, and I totally understand. It's like churches like that have a really tight-knit community, and it's hard to leave. And so I want to say to this woman, like, I feel you. I feel not wanting to leave. I feel that all the people are really nice and really care about you. But I would like to tell you, please leave, because that theology is really damaging to a lot of people. And when you leave, be very vocal about it. Don't just tell the pastor. Tell all of your friends at the church why you're leaving. Because one, 
some of those friends like you are thinking like, I don't really agree with all this stuff, but like everyone else is doing it. So I'm doing it too. And it'll help them reconsider that. And two, there are some gay people at the church who aren't out to themselves or aren't out in general or who are wishing they were straight. And I wish that when I left that someone else would have left with me and that didn't happen. And so please leave and please very be very vocal about it. And thank you for doing so. And we're going to leave it there. But first, quickly, I'm going to read this email that we got. Hey, Dan, shitty Southerner here. Just wanted to let you know that referring to a nameless Southern state, my state, imagine that, as a shitty Southern state is about as lousy as one of our local rednecks referring to Washington as one of those faggoty left coast states, which I'm happy to refer to Washington as. I call it a faggoty left coast state all the time. The letter goes on. There are smart, progressive, everybody-loving people here in the South, just as there are lots of things to love about it. Don't forget about us. I won't forget about you. I was just in Birmingham, Alabama to give a speech, and I met lots of wonderful, everybody-loving, progressive, smart, decent people. They are everywhere. And we certainly here in faggoty, left-coast Washington State have our share of shitty, dumb, regressive, everybody-hating people. So I'm sorry that I described – all the southern states uh, in that way, that blanket condemnation, and I take it back. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you want to record a question or a call for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter, at FakeDanSavage. Also, follow Daniel Bergner on Twitter. He's at Bergner, B-E-R-G-N-E-R, Daniel, D-A-N-I-E-L. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.